James chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 100, I mean 1012. 1012. We're looking today at the heart of conflict and the hope of God's grace. The heart of conflict and the hope of God's grace. Let's read verses 1 to 6 and then, and then pray together. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, We thank you for the time in which it has come to us. Uh, It is so instructive on how to respond uh, to present conflict that we experience in our own lives and that we Uh, are witnessing in the world around us. Use it to transform us into peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen. So conflict is something we all face. There is constructive conflict. Love often calls us to face problems in our relationships, uh, perhaps to confront injustice in in our society, and then uh, work toward peaceful solutions that build up others. That's not the sort of conflict that James has in mind here. James is addressing destructive conflict, a conflict that tears down others, Knee-jerk reactions that threaten peace, uh, daily fights for our own self-interests, divisive attitudes, various kinds of, of abuse. We all face destructive conflict as well. We we live in a world of destructive conflict. Uh, we experience conflict in our house. In our, in our homes, we, we, we experience conflict in our, in, our, in our friendships. We experience conflict sometimes in our churches. Conflict affects the people we work with. It's present in marriages and in politics. Conflict happens on the streets of Baton Rouge and in a car in Minneapolis and on the streets of Dallas. Conflict comes with prejudice and insensitive remarks and Facebook rants and violent retaliation. The Bible's assessment is that conflict of this destructive sort is, is actually a universal problem. It is a worldwide dilemma because of sin. 
because of our rebellion against God. Uh, Titus 3, 3, for example, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the natural state of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. And, and not even the church is immune to destructive conflict. We've, we've already observed in the letter of James itself, the rich looking down on the poor, others are getting angry at each other. Whether we're in the middle of conflict or know of conflict or see a conflict coming, James's words are very instructive. They are very relevant. They are very important. And I think you'll find them very helpful for your relationships and for your marriage and your parenting and your co-workers and interacting with, with the world about current events. Most importantly, your relationship with God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James gives us God's perspective on our conflicts. Uh, he tells us exactly what God sees when He looks at our conflicts. He takes two sinners in conflict with, with each other, button heads, and he, He's going to sit them down in their seats and open them wide up. Hebrews says that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. James takes the Word of God and he cuts them open to the very core, to their heart. If you want to know why you fight with your wife, uh, why your kids argue over toys, why you can't get along with an employee, and why shootings like the one in Dallas happens, God reveals it right here. He exposes conflict for what it is. Verses 1 to 3 tell us why our conflicts exist. They explain the wayward passions beneath our conflicts. The wayward passions beneath our conflicts. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What is their source, in other words? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Notice what James does not say here. He does not say that you fight because the other person is just a pain in the neck. He does not say that you fight because your hormones are raging. He does not say that you fight because your father was the same way or you're just like your mother. He doesn't say that you fight because you just had a bad day at work and you're tired. He doesn't say that you fight because your felt needs aren't being met. He doesn't say that you fight because others are stepping on your rights. He says we fight because our passions are at war within us. The problem isn't out there so much as it is in here. You desire, he says, and do not have, so you murder. You covet. Where does that happen? In the heart. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
So here's the answer. This is the root of our conflict problems. We fight because we don't get what we want. Our desire for something so rules us that we will sin in order to have it. We will step on people to have it. We get angry if they get in the way of it. This is what played out on the streets of Dallas. And this is what plays out in our day-to-day lives where conflict is present. As Dan McCartney once uh, said it, animosity escalates when desire is frustrated. And what makes us even more vulnerable is that, is that some of the things we desire can be good. We can actually justify our desires for good things. For instance, isn't it good that a wife might want her husband to show her affection? Isn't it good for, for someone to want a little rest after a long day at work? Isn't it good to want obedience from your children? Isn't it good for a child to want a friend to share his toys? Isn't it good to want a co-worker to do his job rightly? Yes, these are all good desires. The problem is that we often want even good things too much. We want them to the degree that we will sin in order to get them. We want them to the degree that we stop trusting that God is truly enough for us. We want them to the degree that we believe we can handle the situation better than the Creator. We want them to the degree that I'll take you out before I lay my life down for you. Wayward passions are the root of all destructive conflict. They fight for the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God. Our wayward passions disrupt our fellowship with others. Look at the the picture James paints um, here. The word behind quarrels is is repeatedly used throughout Scripture for military conflict. Just all-out war uh, between nations. He also doesn't hold back from calling it murder. James seems to be following the pattern of Jesus' teaching Jesus taught that anger was essentially murderous in principle. 1 John 3 even brings up the the example of Cain and his evil jealousy that led to the murder of Abel. And he says, so is anybody who does not love his brother. You're a murderer at heart. We can often dismiss our sinful conflicts as, as not that big of a deal. But from God's perspective, they're nothing less than a declaration of war. We have our own kingdom to defend, and we will do everything we can to keep it. Think of it like this. When you turn on the news and you see God's image bearers getting shot or shooting, or read of the death toll rising to 281 after a a bomb goes off in Baghdad, When when you watch civil war continue in Colombia, do you just shrug your shoulders at it and say, oh well. Of course not. The corruption is horrific. The blood is gory. The orphaned children are too much to respond with such cavalier dismissal. No, we hurt inside. We groan. We are sickened by it all. 
We want to get out and do something to bring these people peace. We should feel the same way toward our sinful, destructive conflict. We should be just as grieved by our wayward passions causing disruption in our fellowship with others. It's not just a skirmish with your wife. It's not just a harsh reaction to your child. It's not just another argument at work. When our inner cravings rule us instead of the Prince of Peace, the result is all-out war. It's the unraveling of the way God created humanity to live and together in wholeness and peace. We've got to get our nose in the Bible more often and see our sinful conflict for the horror that it really is. Our wayward passions also disrupt our fellowship with God. And this becomes especially evident in our prayer life. James says first that you do not have because you do not ask. Now, if you notice here, he's already said in verse 2, you desire and cannot have, you covet and cannot obtain. Desire is not lacking in these folks. But the patient dependence on God to fulfill those desires is lacking. Prayer is lacking in some of them. Prayer is expressing our dependence on God, knowing that He is generous to give. James 1.5, you remember, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him give to God, let him ask God who gives generously. God is generous, who gives generously to all without reproach. In some sense, they don't believe God is generous enough. And so they try to obtain with human means what can only be given by divine means. Instead of praying for it, I'll fight for it. I will kill you for it. And even when they do ask God for something, they don't receive it from Him. It's not that He doesn't hear them. It's that He chooses not to give to them. He knows why they want it. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To spend it on your passions. Prayer malfunctions when, we, when, when what we want contradicts God's kingdom and its values. When our desires are far from God's priorities and purposes... He refuses the requests. Prayer is humbling yourself before a king with universal authority to do his will and not our own. One writer asked, why would God want to answer the prayer of a believer who wants to live like an enemy of Christ? So on the one hand, prayerlessness exposes that we don't think God is generous enough And on the other hand, it's possible that our desires aren't really for God at all in our praying. We just want His stuff. Our wayward passions warp our communion with God in prayer. So we have to check ourselves here. Are are there good things that you want that you just never ask for? How many times have I gone on and on about something? that I want to see changed in my own life, 
that I want to see changed in our family, that I want to see changed in our church, that I want to see changed in our community. And mid-sentence, my wife stops me and says, have you asked God for it? Have you prayed about this? No. Not yet. Guess you should do that, huh? Right? Praise God for wives who are willing to point out our lack of dependence on God. In some sense, I've lost sight of God's generosity. And I'm trying to figure out ways to do things and create things with my own hands and my own power and my own strength instead of asking Him for it. And then also, is what you're asking for in agreement with God's will in Scripture? And do you want it for the right reasons? For example, it's possible to want to know, to, to want to, uh, to desire to teach the Bible really well for all the wrong reasons. Just so you can be in front and you can be in front of others. And it's possible to want to make more money, but for all the wrong reasons. God wants a changed heart that trusts His goodness and that is content to live for His kingdom and its priorities no matter what. So the world is a place of conflict. The source of all that conflict is our own wayward passions, which disrupt fellowship with God and fellowship with others. And now James takes us to the warning of adultery with the world. The warning of adultery with the world. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How would you respond if I got up here and said, You adulterous people? Talk about a punch in the gut from your pastor. Now let me ask this. What if God was saying it? That's who's saying it here. Now it's also true that James has affectionately called them brothers and sisters nine times before he says this. But still, it's quite a wallop. You adulterous people. It would help us, though, to understand where this language comes from. It comes from the Old Testament. The Bible uses several analogies to describe God's relationship with His people. That might be a king with his citizens, uh, a shepherd with his sheep, a gardener with his vineyard. One of those relationships is a husband with his wife. To be God's people was to be in a covenant union with Him. That was much like a marriage. Marriage partners are to be faithful to one another. Ezekiel 16, for instance, tells a a bit of a, a Cinderella story of God coming to Israel and finding her in a, a desperate state, dirty and bloody and without hope. And in His mercy, He, he cleans her up and He prepares her to be His bride. I mean, listen, listen to some of this. Uh, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and, 
and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and and washed off your blood from you, and, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. This is, this is way better than Disney. right? What an awesome portrait of our God and His love and grace. What an amazing covenant a husband he is to so beautify his people for himself who in their right mind would want to run around on this husband. He's incomparable in his love. But that's exactly what Israel did. They chased after the idols of other nations. They cheated on their faithful husband with other gods. Ezekiel 16, verse 15 says, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, and you lavished your whorings on any passerby. She was like a serial adulteress, a whore, a slut. Their idolatry is comparable to adultery. Cheating on God with idols. When James says, you adulterous people, he's describing what our wayward passions are really like in terms of the Old Testament categories They turn us into an unfaithful bride, giving herself over to everybody else except her true husband. The absolute disgust you feel about prostitution and pornography should be the disgust you feel about your own sin. It's a picture of it. Friendship with the world is not beautiful, and it's actually deadly. If you become friends with the world, this text says God is your enemy. He sets himself against you. Now, let's be careful. There are many, many good things in this world that God has created for for us to enjoy. But James doesn't have that world in mind. The world we cannot be friends with is the fallen world, the, the system of evil and rebellion against God. Wayward passions rise when we're more in love with this world's values than we are with God. And if that's true of us, God becomes our enemy, not our friend. And how could He be our friend? I mean, He is is holy and righteous and good, and His purpose is for His holy and righteous and good kingdom to cover the earth. If what we want is leading us to live for another kingdom... How could he be our friend? You see, our passions 
they don't just declare war against each other. They declare war against God. So there is a great warning in this. To be God's enemy is to be the object of His wrath. He will come in judgment, James tells us, and His judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. This is the bad news. The good news, the good news, however, is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. In verse 5, James points us to the wonder of God's grace. The wonder of God's grace. Before he does, though, he, he points us to God's jealousy. Verse 5, Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. It's a tough text. Several translations have a different rendering of this, of this verse. I'm following the ESV here. And I believe the King James Version, but do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Some translations capitalize the word Spirit to make it refer to the Holy Spirit. That's certainly possible, but it's also possible to leave it, as the ESV does, as referring to the human spirit. And James has already used it this way back in chapter 2, verse 26, if you look there. He says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The point seems to be that God has breathed life into His image bearers, and He is jealous for their exclusive allegiance. Jealous for their exclusive loyalty. Jealous for their exclusive worship. And that's even truer for those of us who have experienced the new birth in Christ. God has put on us a new spirit. And He is jealous for our total obedience. You can be jealous for total obedience when you're God. You can be jealous for exclusive, somebody's exclusive worship when you are God, when you are the supremely worthy one in the universe, and there is no other. I think this jealousy also fits the analogy that he's just referred to in verse 4, where God is the husband of his covenant people. He is jealous for his wife's intimacy. He doesn't want her running around on, on other gods. He wants her exclusively for himself because he is her true... He... Get my pronouns mixed up there? He is her true husband and he chose her. He wants her. And that heightens the sense of our need, does it? Because it shows what God demands. He demands exclusive loyalty, exclusive faithfulness to him. And like any good husband, he is outraged at her adultery. He doesn't want us flirting with the world and its values. But then James goes on to explain. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. You get this picture 
all throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel 16, God has returned to that bride that had forsaken him and he's going to provide atonement for her sins. You get it in Hosea 2, where God is going to return and make a new covenant and no longer is, is, is Israel going to be saying, my Baal, they're going to look to Yahweh alone and say, my husband. Isaiah 54 is, is another place where God returns to His bride. Isaiah 54, verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So you get this picture of, yes, God is jealous. He demands exclusive worship, but He's also compassionate. He's going to go after His bride. He's going to, make every, he's going to give them every grace they need in order to enjoy His presence. This is what James is going on about here. Yeah, he's jealous, but he gives more grace. We'll talk more about this in two weeks, but James is basically giving his own commentary on Proverbs 3.34, which he then quotes in verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? Because He is jealous for our loyal worship. But for those who humble themselves before Him, He is happy to give more and more and more grace to get us there, to get us that place of loyal worship. To say it differently, God's grace provides for us what His jealousy demands from us. How does He do this? What is the grace He provides? It's the grace we find in the message of the Gospel, the good news. God is so jealous for your worship that He made a way for you to enjoy His worship and, to, and, and, and uphold His honor in the forgiveness of your sins. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. It's where God's jealousy for His people and His grace in forgiving them meet. He's a jealous husband who's full of compassion and he will do all that's necessary to win his bride to himself. The result is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's jealousy for our worship necessitates atonement for our sin if He is not to consume us in His jealousy. And He offered up Jesus Christ as that atonement. All of our sins wiped away. All of the judgment that we deserve for those wayward passions we've been talking about. All of Christ, all, all of those, all that we deserved in terms of judgment 
and punishment Christ Jesus satisfied on the cross. All of Christ's righteousness is given to us, and He does it all so that our life will forever reflect God's honor and His glory and His praise forever. The Lord's jealousy for our worship not only demands atonement, it also demands a heart set upon Christ, a heart that loves Christ and is loyal to Him and His commandments. His grace provides that for us too through the new birth, doesn't it? This is chapter 1, verse 18 again. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. We can't, we can't be loyal to Him on our own. We need change in here. These wayward passions are, are too much and He does it through the new birth. If you're going to control your wayward passions, you need to be born again. You need new passions. Passions for holiness. Passions for truth. Passions for Jesus. And those new passions are gifts of God's grace through conversion. The Lord's jealousy also demands that we love our neighbor. When we love our neighbor, as He commands, God is glorified. His Word is honored. His purpose for our humanity is is made right and put in order. God's grace provides for this too, and He does it by putting His love in us. We love because He first loved us. We didn't do anything to deserve His love. It's all grace. It's all free. It's all unmerited favor for us to receive. And it's our only hope for resolving conflict in our own relationships and in the world. You see, so many times the world tries to fix conflict by changing the circumstances or by finding a more peaceful way of just giving people what they want anyway. But in doing so, the world always suppresses the reality of what really needs to change. And that is our relationship with God. What really needs to change, only grace can change. Namely, our heart and our inner passions. The grace of God in our Lord Jesus is the world's only solution to conflict. It's our only hope for reconciliation with God and our only hope for reconciliation with one another. And once we're reconciled with God, He comes to dwell in our hearts and rule over our desires. Apart from God, the world can't control its desires. Only the believer who gets the Holy Spirit has the ability to bring their desires into submission to God's will. And when we submit to God's will, peace and order are then possible in our relationships. God's grace in Jesus takes those warring sinners who are butting heads and He unites them first to Himself. He unites them first to Himself and then to one another as they are drawing from the reconciliation with God. God's grace in Jesus then continues to make peace in our relationships through sanctification. As that Spirit lives in us and applies this Word to us, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another day by day. 
The passions that were once wayward are now gradually moving more and more toward Christ and His kingdom. And one day, God's grace in Christ will bring us into a kingdom where no conflict exists. No destructive conflicts exist. Only peace reigns. Church, you are the new humanity where God's rule is to be governing your relationships. You are a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth in terms of your relationships with one another. What is the world seeing when we are relating to one another? And is it the first fruits of that new creation glory? You are the new humanity where God has won the battle over our destructive conflict. If there's conflict among us, may it always be to the building up of the body of Christ. His grace is really greater than all of our sin. And our relationships must be a compelling witness to the world that that is true. Two weeks from now, we'll look at a few steps that James says that we can take toward peace, toward, our, uh, toward order in our relationships. And he's going to deal first. You can see it just by glancing at our passage. He's going to deal first with our vertical relationship with God. That's in verses... You can read them. Uh, verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and so on. These are steps we can take in our vertical relationship with God. And then he goes on in verses 11 to 12 to talk about our horizontal relationships with other people. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So he's giving us very practical steps how to, uh, of, 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 toward peace, towards order towards getting away from the destructive conflict. So the practical steps for today's theology are coming in the weeks ahead. But let me close today with just a couple of ways you might apply this theology to your conflicts at home and to the conflicts you see in the world. First of all, when you enter conflict, in the kitchen, in the backyard in the car, on vacation, wherever you encounter conflict, once you step back, remember this text, step back and ask yourself questions like this. What do I want? What am I seeking? And what do I think I need so much? What do I want? What am I seeking? And what do I think I need so much? The, these kinds of questions help get to the root of our conflicts. They help expose our wayward passions. Take a couple of kids playing in their rooms. Both of them see a toy that they really want. What's the problem? There's only one of them. Right? You know what's coming. They get in a spat over who had the toy first. Who made the first move toward the toy? Who came in the room first? Who was born first? You get the idea. And each of them wants the toy bad enough that they start hurting each other in order to get it. What's James doing? James is coming in and saying, he walks into the room and he sits them both down and he asks them, what do you want? What do you want? I wanted the toy. You wanted it so bad that you, wanted to, that you sinned against your brother in order to get it. 
God wasn't enough for you in that moment, was He? This is what James is doing. And you know that little dispute between children? This is really no different than what adults face. It may not be toys that we want, but it could be a comfortable chair and a quiet evening after a long day. It could be that you don't want anybody demanding your time. It could be that you want uninterrupted focus on a particular task. It could be that you wish people didn't talk so much. It could be that you want a little TLC. It could be that you want someone to do more for you or wish you had more financial security and on and on. Adults have conflicts over all kinds of things that are no different than what children experience. This passage sits both people down and gets straight to the heart. What do you want? What are you seeking? What do you think you need so much? What is it that makes you declare war on the other person? What is it that you want more than God and all of His goodness and grace that He has made available to you in Jesus Christ? What is so necessary to your happiness that you must play God in order to have it? We have to ask these questions in moments of conflict and answer them for ourselves honestly. Sometimes we have to bring our brothers and sisters in to help us discern what it is we want. That's what we aim to do in our care group settings or over coffee with a sister or whatever. We're aiming towards these, bringing people in to discover what is it I want so much. And many times we will discover that what's motivating our anger or our divisiveness or our impatience or our quarreling is some form of idolatry. Some form of what James has called spiritual adultery. We've got to identify those idols, those God replacements. In some way, I'm not believing that God is truly enough. I'm not believing that God is generous to give me all that I need. I'm not believing that God's provision is good enough, that He's not wise in what He's bringing into my life. Or, I'm wanting my own kingdom. I'm praying for Him to change everybody else. I'm praying for Him to change all of my circumstances, but I'm surely not... praying for Him to change me because after all, they're the ones making me angry. And James is saying, no, 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 that's wrong. It's our own wayward passions that are making us angry. Our own passions are causing the conflict. Problems not out there, problems in here. And then once you're there, once you've sought to ask yourself those questions, once you've identified those idols... James's call is what Ben's call to us was at the beginning of the service to run to the throne of grace because we have a God who gives more grace. Right? Whose grace is greater than all our sin. That's what he said. But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We run to the throne room of grace. We humble ourselves before God's throne of grace and cry out for more grace. More grace to forgive our sins. More grace to sever us from our idols. More grace to change our hearts. More grace to reconcile us with, with other people. 
More grace to make us a, a peaceful person. More grace to live for His kingdom alone. If there's ever conflict in the church, it's because we're living for competing kingdoms instead of living alone for God's kingdom. So we ask for more grace to live alone for His kingdom, and God promises to give it. Verse 6 says that He opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Why don't we go to Him now and ask for more grace?